Hopefully everyone had a good Thanksgiving, good time with family and friends, and good eating. That's always a favorite around this time of year. I'm reminded, though, of being that last week was Thanksgiving. I'm reminded of something that Johnny Carson said. Some of you young people have no idea who Johnny Carson is, but used to host The Tonight Show before Jay Leno and before Jimmy Fallon a long, long time ago. But anyways, he said this concerning Thanksgiving. He said, Thanksgiving is an emotional holiday. Because at Thanksgiving, people travel thousands of miles to be with people that they only see once a year, and they discover that once a year is way too often. (laughs) Hopefully that was not the case for you uh, this this Thanksgiving holiday. In the midst of a series we've been in for the last couple of weeks called Thanks A Lot, in which we've been talking about how do we cultivate a a, a spirit of Thanksgiving. And when when I say Thanksgiving... I'm not just talking about the holiday, I'm talking about a spirit, I'm talking about an attitude, because true thanksgiving is not just something that we give one day out of the year, but it's something that we, we do every year, every, every part of the year and every season of our lives ought to be about thanks and giving thanks ultimately to God, thanks a lot, as we've been talking about in this series. And today we're going to wrap things up. I wasn't sure how long into um, December I would go. I wanted to get into December, so I'm getting one day into December. And then next week we'll pick back up with a a series as we go into the Christmas holidays. But I I wanted to wrap things up in our series this morning. And so far in our series, we've we've talked about a couple of different things. Week one, we talked about how, how are we full of it? How do we get full of it? And by it, I mean Thanksgiving. How do we get full of Thanksgiving. Week two, last week, we talked about the battle for it and just the battle that we have in in trying to to be people of Thanksgiving, but also some things that Thanksgiving battles against. And then this morning, as we close things out, I want to talk about coming back to give it. And in doing so, I want to point us to a particular story. We find that story in Luke chapter 17, if you want to go ahead and turn there. And it's the story of one man who came back to give thanks. And in doing so, I think he sets an example for each of us when it comes to Thanksgiving in our lives as well. And so Luke chapter 17, starting in verse 11, Luke writes this. Now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. And as he was going into a village, 10 men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, go show yourselves to the priest. And as they went, they were cleansed. And we'll get to the rest of the story in just a moment. But before we get there, I want to kind of give you some context for what it is that we are reading. Most forms of leprosy, we, we don't really see leprosy in our culture today, although it's still present in, in a lot of third world countries. But most forms of leprosy basically are caused by a slow-growing bacteria. I'm not going to give you like a full-on science lesson or doctoral lesson, but they're, they're caused by a slow-growing bacteria in a person's body that affects your nerves and then affects certain parts of your body, namely your hands and your fingers and your face, and so the tissue and skin on your face. And it's not a pretty sight. If you Google leprosy and you look at some pictures, it's... it's pretty gruesome to look at, but as bad as it is to look at, lepers don't really feel a whole lot. And that's part of the problem because their their nerve endings are kind of shot. What they'll do is they'll keep doing an activity that 
will further do damage to their fingers or their hands or their face or, 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 or you know, that, whatever part of their body that is being affected by the disease. And so what happens is you've, you've got their skin just kind of decaying and they're doing uh, activities that are further leading to that decay. And all of this is happening while they're living. Their, their, their skin is literally decomposing while they are living. Le- leprosy literally tears a person apart physiologically. But it does more than that. It also tears a person apart uh, socially. You know, when people see a leper, they tend to avert their eyes. And oftentimes in doing so, tend to avert their, their hearts as well. In Jesus' day, one of the things that you saw very often was this happened. People averted their eyes. They averted their hearts. And when people were around a leper, you didn't want to look at them. You didn't want to get near them. In fact, you really didn't have to. Uh, If you read in places like Leviticus chapter 13, there was in fact a law that said that lepers were to go outside of the villages. They were to be in their own colonies and away from their families and away from uh, the rest of society. And, And a law like that was pretty much par for the course for any ancient society. And so with the breakdown of your body, also came the breakdown of relational um, aspects and, 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 and those relationships of family and, and work and, and, and any kind of relationship. You had to be completely removed from people except for those who were also suffering from the same condition. And on top of that, not only did leprosy tear people apart, uh, you know, socially and physically, but it also tore people down spiritually as well. In the ancient world, many people thought that if someone was sick or diseased, or suffering, that that person must be under some kind of judgment or punishment from God, either from a sin that they committed or a sin that their parents committed. There's a story in John chapter 9 where even Jesus' disciples asked him, they said, who sinned? There's a layman. Who sinned, this man or his parents? That was the thought, that if you were suffering from some kind of disease, that you must be under some judgment or punishment from God. And so if you had leprosy, that was just an assumption, that you had done something wrong, You had sinned in some way bad enough that God was now punishing you. And so a leper, think about this, put this in context. A leper wasn't just dealing with the physiological damage that was being done to their body, but they were also dealing with the social ramifications as well, being separated from family and friends, from work. And on top of that, they they were being fed this belief that God was judging them. God was punishing them for this disease in some way. And leprosy tore down its victims in so many ways. And so you think about when Jesus heals these lepers and and other stories, this, this wasn't just a healing of the body. It goes so much deeper than that. He was literally making it possible for them to work again, for them to return to society again, for them to, to be whole again. It was a whole life change and healing in many ways for these people. There's another thing interesting, though, when you think about and kind of is brought to light in this story, but leprosy did something else for for these people, for these men and and women who suffered from it. It united them. In the story, there's 10 men in the story, and as we'll learn, one of them is a Samaritan. The other nine are presumably Jews, but Samaritans were outsiders. You you may not read a whole bunch into that, but Samaritans were, were outsiders. They were the ancestral enemies of the Jews. They were the Hatfields to the McCoys. They were the Wolverines to the Spartans. They were the Buckeyes to the Wolverines. And that doesn't even do it justice, right? But yet they were united. As different as they were, they were united. 
The Samaritan with a group of Jews is united because they're united in their story. They're united in their pain. They're united in their suffering. They're united in their condition. You think about in our lives, there's a certain element where similar struggles and similar things that we've been through tend to unite us in a a very distinct way and, and transcend all of our differences. And in many ways, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but, but I think it's worth noting. In many ways, leprosy is kind of a metaphor for sin. And like all of these men, all of us have it as well. It does the same things that leprosy does to a person in the physical realm in, in, a, in a much deeper level. But also on the physical side as well. You think about it from physiologically. On the surface, there's an element where all of us are going to die at some point because we live in a fallen world and because we are sinners. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death, not just spiritually, but physically as well. And you and I will all die because we live in But also you think about the, the stresses and the consequences that our sin brings upon us or the stress of, of hiding our sin. I think of a passage in Psalm 32 where David talks about how uh, he had seasons of unconfessed sin in his life and it was like he was, his bones were wasting away. You ever felt like that when you've gone through trying to hide something or, or, or just dealing with the consequences of your sin? It affects you physiologically, not just in a spiritual way, but physiologically. But on top of that, sin also affects us relationally. You look at the, the consequences of sin and where sin is, relational breakdowns usually are not too far behind. And that happens from the very beginning of of Scripture. You think about Adam and Eve. Their problems are are, are as a direct result of sin, and that flows down into their marriage and into their kids, Cain and Abel. Cain murders Abel, and it's been happening ever since. And so our, our sin also tears us down relationally, and of course, our sin tears us down spiritually. Scripture often speaks about the nature of sin and what it does in separating us from God, and yet it's our common condition that unites all of us in this room, even this morning. We come from different backgrounds. We come from different stories. We come from different socioeconomic backgrounds, different cultures, different ways of thinking, and yet we are all united because we are all in the same condition. No matter how different we are from one another, we're all part of the same sin colony. We know what it is to be torn apart physiologically, mentally, emotionally by our sin. We know what it is to be torn apart relationally by our sin. And certainly we all know what it's like to be torn apart spiritually from God by our sin. And so despite their differences, these men are united because they have the same story. They have the same condition, just as similar as you and I are today. Verse 13, back to our story, says that they stood at a distance and they called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. It's interesting. They called Jesus Master. There's several interesting things in this story. They called Jesus Master, but they don't ask him to heal them. You notice that? What do they ask for? They ask for him to have pity on them, to do whatever it is that he can give, just like any other normal person. They acknowledge him as master in their words, but seemingly they don't really, I don't know, at least in in what they ask of him, they don't fully grasp everything that that entails. And then something odd happens. Jesus doesn't touch them. He doesn't pray for them. He doesn't even make them a promise that they will be healed. What does he do? He simply says, go and show yourselves 
to the priest. And you say, why does he do that? Well, according to Jewish law, only the priest can declare a person healed of leprosy. Only a priest can, can declare a person clean and fit to re-enter into society. And although Jesus implies that they're going to be healed or that they are healed, he doesn't heal them, at least not at that moment. And then here's what Luke says. As they went, they were cleansed. Literally, in the going, they were cleansed. They don't get cleansed before they go. They get cleansed as they go. And I think there's a couple of things that are pretty powerful about this, this kind of section, this, this uh, little, little passage. First, while I'm not sure they completely grasp, like I said, everything that they do in calling Jesus master and all that that means, they respond to him like he is. You know, there's a lot of people that call Jesus master, but they don't respond to him like he's master. But they do. Again, you think about it. They ask him to have pity on them. Jesus doesn't at least heal them in that moment. He doesn't touch them. He doesn't really offer any kind of prayer in, 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 in saying, you know, you're going to be healed. He just simply tells them to go show themselves to the priest. And you know what they do? They go. They go. And I think there's something to be said for that. You know, a lot of people call Jesus Lord and Master, but they never take those steps of obedience. And, and, and yet they, they go, no questions asked. I mean, it's one thing to call Jesus Lord. It's another thing to obey him, no questions asked, even if he's not giving you what it is that you think you want in the moment that you want it. But that's what they do. He tells them to go and they go. And then secondly, they're cleansed as they go along. Literally, again, in the going, they were cleansed. There came a point where in their obedience to Jesus, their healing took place. They weren't healed initially, but as they went, that's when the healing happened. Had they disbelieved in Jesus or had they said, that's just crazy, that doesn't make any sense, they wouldn't have been healed. But Jesus tells them to go. They believed him, they had faith in him, and as a result, they received their healing. You see, you and I can talk about faith and we can talk about belief, but faith doesn't happen in a vacuum. You know, it's one thing to talk about faith and we sing about faith and we, we read about faith, but faith is exhibited in what you and I actually do. Do we live it out? Do we flesh it out in our daily lives? And so often, more often than not, our path to healing and transformation doesn't happen before you go. It happens as you go along. Now, your salvation happens when you give your life to Jesus Christ, but your transformation and your healing happens as you walk out what it means to follow Jesus and to live your life for him, to live in obedience to him. It's not a one-time commitment. It's an everyday thing where you and I are walking it out as we go, and that's when healing and transformation happens. Again, so many people will acknowledge Jesus as, as Savior and may even call him Lord and Master, but they don't take those steps of obedience. And so they never get cleansed. But these lepers went, and every single one of them, I, I think that's worth noting, all 10 of them were cleansed. The similarities cease. Let's read the rest of the story, starting in verse 15. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him, and he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go, your faith has made you well. 
So as we think about this story, I just want to give you four things basically in your notes that I, I think this story points to us about what it means to be thankful and what Thanksgiving ultimately leads to. And the first one is this, Thanksgiving leads to action. Thanksgiving leads to action. Now, I, I, we're not told when these lepers figure out that they're healed, but I imagine it doesn't take very long. I, I, I imagine they're on the road, you know, going to the nearest village where a priest is, and all of a sudden one looks over at another and he's like, hold on a second, You're, there's something different about you. And he gets a little closer look and, and, and he says, you, your, your skin looks normal on your face. And your hands, show me your hands. And, and your fingers, they're, they're well. And your hands, they don't have that, that, that scaly uh, feeling and texture to them. And, and, and then they, they start looking at each other and examining each other. Can you imagine the celebration that just breaks out as they're on their way and all of a sudden all of them are just looking at each other. They're comparing their fingers, their hands, and, and they're all healed. And they just start to celebrate. And probably some yelling and screaming and, 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 and high fives, I'm guessing. That's what guys do when we celebrate. You know, we get, we're fist pumping. They are pumped. And in the midst of the celebration, while all ten are cleansed, only one of them stops to turn around and come back to give thanks. Just one. And I thought about it. What are the other nine doing? And then I thought, you know what? They're probably just doing pretty normal stuff. They're probably going back to their families, you know, happy to, to be cleansed, going back to, to celebrate with those that they love, just normal things, but for whatever reason, they don't come back to give thanks. This one does. And then it got me thinking, how often have I been blessed by God, went off to celebrate the gift, went off to enjoy the moment and the blessing and yet never circled around to give thanks. How often have I just gone on my merry way enjoying the blessings and never stopped to turn around and say thank you. But not only does thanksgiving lead to action, I think it also leads to worship. At least that's what we see here in the story. There are two things that stand out to me that I think are so cool in this. One, first Luke says, and I'll put the scripture back on the, the board. Luke says that he came back, this leper who came back to give thanks, he came back praising God in a loud voice. Now on the surface, that may not mean a whole lot, but when you think about it, lepers were used to using their loud voices. In fact, they were required by law that when a leper was around someone who was uh, clean, who was not a leper, if they saw someone coming, they were required by law to shout out, unclean, unclean, to, as not only a law, but as a courtesy to let them know that I am, I'm a leper, don't get near me. That's what this guy's been shouting for how much of his life? Years and years and years, and yet for the first time, in probably many years, this man is no longer shouting about his disease. Now he's declaring the praises of God. I don't know about you, but I think that's pretty cool. For years and years and years, this is what he's been shouting with his loud voice, and now he's declaring the praises of God. When Jesus comes on the scene in somebody's life, he changes what you shout about. He changes what you, you, you shout out loud about. And this guy is shouting a new thing. He's declaring the praises of God, which leads to the second thing I think Luke, or I don't think Luke does say this, that he says he throws himself at Jesus' feet. He throws himself at Jesus' feet and he thanks him. Now, I thought about this and um, I think this is where 
most of us respectable churchgoers get a little bit uncomfortable. You know, this type of emotion, we kind of, you know, there's a reverence and an awe, and I'm not saying that that's not appropriate, but this kind of emotion, I mean, we save those, you know, we don't get that excited unless we're going to like a football game, right? Basketball game, sporting event. But he throws himself at Jesus's feet. He shouts in a loud voice and he throws himself at Jesus's feet. Do you notice that the degree of his appreciation matches the degree of his desperation? The degree of his appreciation for what Jesus has done matches his desperation for something to be done. In verse 13, it says the lepers are calling out to Jesus in a loud voice, asking Jesus to have pity on him. This one returns, he's praising God in a loud voice, and he throws himself at Jesus's feet. When's the last time that your passion for giving God thanks matched your passion for asking him for help? When's the last time that your excitement for coming back to give thanks to God matched the desperation for which you pray for him to help you when you need it? And then Luke notes the irony that this guy was a Samaritan. Jesus calls him a foreigner. He's an outsider. This was just salt on the wound for the Jews, similar to the story of, of the Good Samaritan. Like that, that, they shouldn't be the examples of how the, the, we are to live. The Samaritan, no, no. Picks anybody else, not a, not a Samaritan. He's the last person in the world that a Jew would think would be a positive example about anything. And yet this guy sets the example. The irony goes even deeper too. The, the, common phrase that we often use to describe the Israelites is the Jews. That term Jew comes from uh, one of the tribes of Israel, which is the tribe of Judah. Do you know what the term Judah or the name Judah means? Praise. How ironic that this Samaritan is a better example for giving praise and thanks than the people who are named for it gets even better. Jesus picks up on this irony in verse, uh, in verses 15 and following. He says, where are the other nine? Has no one been found to return to give praise to God except this foreigner? And then he says, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. Note that when he returned to give thanks, he got another blessing. All 10 were cleansed, but this guy gets something more. Jesus enlightens him. He tells him why he's healed, or at least a part of why he's healed. He says, your faith has made you well. Now, his faith is not the, the complete encompassing of what made him well. Ultimately, it's Jesus' healing that took place, but his faith had, had something to do with it. That's what the other nine miss out on. They miss out on the insight. They miss out on the understanding as to how the healing happened. They miss out on the blessing that Jesus gives to this man. Jesus wants to let him know, your faith has played a part. Your faith has played a part in you being healed in, in more than just your, your body. And the encouraging thing to this Samaritan would be that, that he had something of value to offer to Jesus. Again, the Jews didn't think that anything the Samaritans had was, was of value. And yet, this Samaritan had a faith that, that blessed Jesus. This Samaritan had a faith that Jesus affirmed, even though the Jews didn't think it was possible for anything that the Samaritans did to be worth affirming. But here's what I want us to see. The Samaritan received that insight and that blessing when he came back to give thanks. 
Giving thanks opened the door for Jesus to, to give more to him, to offer him another blessing. Sometimes God doesn't give you anything more than what you have until you learn to be thankful for what you already have. And until you and I can be thankful for what we have, maybe we're missing out on so many other blessings that God desires to pour into our lives. And this, this Samaritan, of all people, gets a blessing that the other nine don't. He, he learned something and received a blessing that they didn't get because he chose to come back and give thanks, which points to another thing I think thankfulness leads to, and that's wholeness. You see, there's something deeper going on in what Jesus says when he says, rise and go, your faith has made you well. That word for rise in the Greek is also the word for resurrection. And that word for well in the Greek is also the word for rescue or save. In other words, there's more than just a healing of leprosy that's taking place here. There's a resurrection. There's a salvation that in coming back and giving thanks, this man found out something else. He found out that he had been pronounced well on a whole nother level on a whole deeper level. When he put his faith in Jesus and he saw Jesus as his master, there was more than just a physical healing that took place because there's a bigger problem than just the disease of the body. That's why I brought up earlier this analogy of, of leprosy to sin. There's a bigger problem than just the disease of the body. There's the disease of the soul. There's a bigger problem than just your circumstances. There's the problem of sin. Think about this. Every single person that Jesus healed eventually died. Every single person that Jesus healed eventually died. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, I think about a guy like Lazarus. Some of you may be familiar with this story. Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead. And so Jesus, or Lazarus dies. He's put in the tomb. His spirit presumably leaves his body. Jesus resurrects him from the dead. His spirit goes back into his body and he's got to walk out of the tomb and then he's got to die again. It's kind of a bummer for Lazarus. Every single person that Jesus heals, the healing is only temporary. They, they, they eventually die. You know, it's interesting. When you read through scripture, you and I are not promised tomorrow. But we are promised eternity. You and I are not promised tomorrow in the earthly realm, but you are promised eternity. And that means a lot when you know that you're forgiven and you're saved. When's the last time you threw yourself at Jesus' feet for that? Story of one healed leper coming back to give thanks convicts me. But I came across another story that convicts me as well. This leper is a modern-day leper, and she wasn't healed, but her story convicts me as well. Because in one sense, while she wasn't healed, she was very much whole. The story is, is told that a guy named Jack Hinton was on a short-term mission trip, and he was preaching and leading worship at a leper colony on the island of Tobago. And there was time for one more song, and so he... Uh, came to the end of the service and he asked anyone in the service if there was any requests that they had for a song they wanted to sing. And there was this woman that was worshiping there that, that raised her fingerless hand in the air. Remember I told you leprosy affects the fingers and the hands and, and she had been affected by leprosy so much that she had lost all the fingers on her hand. Up to this point, she'd kind of had her head down 
and had her head turned a little bit so he couldn't see her face. But when he called on her, she looked up at him and he saw what he describes. These are his words. He said, it was the most hideous face I have ever seen. He said her nose and her ears were entirely gone. Most of her lips had rotted away. But with her fingerless hand in the air, she asked very gently, can we sing Count Your Blessings? Hinton said, of course. But as they began to sing, he couldn't even make it through the song. In fact, he wound up leaving the service because he was so overcome with emotion. A fellow team member followed him outside and, and he said, Jack, are you okay? He said, I bet you'll never be able to sing that song again. And Jack Hinton said, I, I will, but I'll never sing it the same way. One more thing about the image of this Samaritan falling on his face at the feet of Jesus. One of the words for worship in scripture is to lie prostrate before, to fall down, literally to kiss the ground at the knees, at the feet of someone that you are offering adoration and respect to. That's what this Samaritan does. And while this is describing a one-time event here in this passage, the meaning of the word Worship is not meant to convey just a one-time event. It's a picture of all of life. Because Thanksgiving is a lifestyle. Thanksgiving's not a holiday. Thanksgiving's not a, a thing that we do every once in a while. Thanksgiving is a lifestyle. One of my favorite passages is in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. The Apostle Paul writes, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Paul says that you and I are to offer our bodies as living sacrifices because of the mercy that we've been given. And when we do that, that is our spiritual act of worship. That's how we worship him. You see, oftentimes we think about worship and we use it this way. We even use church in a, in a disconnected sense from what it really means. But we, we use terms like worship and service in, in the context of what we're doing right now. But when you read through the New Testament, most of the times that worship is mentioned, it's not in relationship to a public assembly, but it's in, a, in relationship to the way that you live your life. It's not in relationship to what you and I do for an hour or so on a Sunday morning, but it's in relationship to what do you do the other six days and 23 hours out of the rest of the week. Because worship is not just what we, what we do, it is a lifestyle. It is the way that we, we live. And in one sense, believing in Jesus is really about a life of thanksgiving. And believers in Jesus, we never stop giving thanks. I, I like what Charles Dickens said. Charles Dickens of Christmas Carol, you may know him. You probably watch uh, a, a version of his story around this time of year heading into the Christmas season. But when he, after actually he wrote the, the a Christmas Carol, he was touring America. And here's one of the things that he said, not about Christmas, but about Thanksgiving. He said, you Americans have it all wrong. Instead of having just one day set aside for Thanksgiving, you should have 364 days of Thanksgiving. Then use the one day just for complaining and griping and do all of your complaining and griping on that one day. Then he said, use the other 364 days to thank God for the many blessings he showered upon you.
I think he's got something there. And as believers, one way of looking at our entire lives is that we never stop giving thanks. Giving thanks just presents itself in different ways throughout our lives. You see, sometimes my thanks looks like sacrifice. Sometimes my thanks looks like trust. Sometimes my thanks looks like obedience. Sometimes my thanks looks like giving him my praise and my worship. All of those things are forms of giving thanks. And so that's what we do. We give thanks. So as we close out our time this morning and close out our series, let me ask you, what does it look like for you to come back and to give thanks to God? What does it look like for you to praise him with a loud voice? What does it look like for you to throw yourself at his feet in worship and praise? What expression of trust will you give? What expression of obedience will you lay it all out on? What does it look like for you to be as passionate about thanksgiving and thanks living in your life as you are about asking God for help when you need it? And who knows what he might do with your acts of obedience? Who knows what he might do with your sacrifice? Who knows what he might do with your trust? Who knows what he might do with the thanks you offer? So come back and give him your thanks a lot.